Robo Universe with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the Robots Podcast. This week, we're back for our second episode about last year's Robo Universe Conference, where our interviewer Barta de May met up with a number of speakers and attendees. In today's episode, his interviews will cover drones, artificial intelligence, and 3D printing. So let's get started with Abati's chat to Professor Douglas Stowe from San Diego State University, with whom he discusses his research into aerial drone imaging, which is used to determine land use change over time. Hello. Could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Doug Stowe. Uh, I'm from San Diego State University. Sorry. Okay. Could you tell me about uh, your research and uh, where you do your research? Sure. So I'm a professor of geography at San Diego State University. My research field is called remote sensing and image processing. Um, I'm in a geography department, so we uh, are on the interface between GI science technology and geographic applications. Um, most recently, actually most of my career, I've worked on what's called multi-temporal remote sensing, which deals with um, imaging from satellites and aircraft by taking images over time and analyzing those imagery quite often to look at uh, land surface dynamics, changes in the land surface, possibly to infer flows or movements of things. And, uh, my, my doctoral dissertation was on uh, trying to model uh, surface circulation of ocean currents from remote sensing images, but uh, in the last 35 years or so I've worked more on land, terrestrial type processes, uh, land use, land cover change, um, vegetation change, vegetation monitoring. Like that. And how do you gather your, uh, image, uh, your images and your image data? Uh, well, we rely mostly on uh, other systems, like uh, satellite systems that are government-run or commercial, uh, airborne data, uh, some of the, uh, like the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, digital ortho images, things like that. But we've also been involved uh, with uh, developing fairly low-cost, flexible aerial imaging systems um, to... Uh, to provide a means for fairly high-resolution mapping and monitoring and applications, sometimes just in support of satellite analysis. That's kind of a calibration and validation component. And could you tell me in detail what the low-cost aerial solutions are? Sure. So more, most recently, it's in UAV or drone imaging. Um, we've, uh, both with fixed-wing and uh, rotor craft, uh, using fairly small cameras, uh, a lot of our work is with uh, vegetation, so we try to uh, utilize co- uh, visible near-infrared, so color-infrared imagery. But prior to the common occurrence or availability of UAVs or drones, we've worked a lot with uh, what are called light sport aircraft, or essentially like ultralights that are piloted, but very small, short takeoff and landing. They're pretty flexible, and you can put in um, off-the-shelf cameras, some of which may be modified to be near-infrared sensitive. So some of these are uh, single camera, single chip color infrared, and others are multi-camera, uh, visible near infrared that are synced together. Um, 
but uh, yeah, some of that that color infrared imaging goes back about 25, 30 years. We've been doing that, uh, flying a little color infrared TV camera, basically uh, on a, a Cessna aircraft. We used to do that up in the North Slope of Alaska to get imagery in remote areas for some of our work on Arctic tundra ecosystem. And uh, so, what is the purpose of uh, gathering this uh, information? Well, we. We're partly involved in uh, in the development of the techniques for imaging and processing and mapping, and, and so the technical side, but also an applied side. So, for instance, I mentioned the work on the North Slope of Alaska. There, we're interested in uh, the over the last three decades or so of warming, on changes in the vegetation distributions, changes in the you know, melting of permafrost, and how that's affecting uh, both the uh, ecosystems in terms of the plant types that are growing there and their abundance, but also things like uh, greenhouse gas uptake or release, um, as an example. More locally in the San Diego area, we've done things like uh, monitoring uh, vegetation habitat zones. So uh, these are areas that are preserves that are uh, not to be developed for, say, uh, residential usage. They might be used for recreation but they are provide habitat for some of the rare endangered plants. Um, and so we're monitoring the kind of condition of that, whether or not the vegetation is um, suitable to maintain habitat for, say, rare endangered birds and reptiles. And, and uh, I read one of your papers in which you discussed uh, some emergency applications. Mm-hmm. Could you uh, maybe detail those a bit? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So that's some of our more recent work, and that's we're moving more into the... UAV drone uh, platforms uh, Im- type of imaging, but um, so we developed a technique about 10, 15 years ago called uh, repeat station imaging, and essentially it's uh, if you think about it, it's, it's location-based image capture when you capture images over time. So um, if you can get that get a, a plane and the sensor essentially back to the same location in the sky repetitively when you're taking imagery over time, it's a lot easier to, um, to register the images, to co-align them. And when they co-align, then you don't get a lot of false detections when we're looking for really, really detailed, like pixel-level uh, change detection. So you do a lot of work on what's called change detection. But in the case for post-hazard damage assessment, we feel that uh, there are certain types of infrastructure that uh, maybe like a hospital, communication, towers, communication facilities um, that are really, really important to the emergency response effort. For instance, uh, an emergency manager wouldn't want to send, uh, during triage, send ambulances uh, to a hospital that had been evacuated or, you know, had been ruled to be... uh, uh, you know, damaged to the point where they didn't want to send any new uh, n- many patients. So um, you you might need to know that, but there may it may be inaccessible, it may be out of communication. So for those types of facilities, um, it it could be useful to have imagery, pre, what we call pre-event imagery, kind of in the bag. And so we've captured that imagery, we've captured their GPS locations of where we ca- where the stations were, where the sensors were, when we fired the camera. And then if there is some kind of event, then we try to refly that, preferably with the same sensor. It doesn't have to be the same platform, but you refly it back to the same locations. And um, the post-event, the time-to imagery, if you will, 
can be very rapidly aligned and change detection. It can almost be done in a real-time sense. And so you have the ability to identify damage as basically a change because you have a reference to the pre-damage condition. Sometimes it's difficult to tell if something's damaged because we don't know what it looked like in the first place, uh, especially when there's real subtle things like cracks and you know, rubble piles and things like that. So uh, we're, we're still developing the technology for doing that and trying at the same time trying to demonstrate it, for instance, to the Department of Transportation, who, uh, for, for them, critical infrastructure of things like bridges and really key highways, which would be the, the routes that emergency responders would take. But other types of things would be like dams that could create a secondary hazard. So if a dam is shaken in an earthquake and it fails or it has cracks and it potentially could fail, that may be something you would want to know the structural integrity almost rap- almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And what are the time spans between these uh, the images that are being taken? Mm-hmm. And what are the resolution of these images? Can you make out cars, yeah. people, buildings? Oh, yeah. You, cars, people. I mean, we're trying to find cracks, right? So... You know, cracks, of course, would be manifested in different sizes, but they're on order of you know the size of a pixel, and that we're we're working mostly with about uh, three centimeter resolution. Um, sometimes it might be f- better to get down to closer to two or one, but uh, depending on what what the real damage type of potential is. Um, but that's that's sort of the nature of it. So this is a very challenging thing is to get images to line up pixel by pixel over time and have them within a pixel or two when the pixels are an inch to, or in this case, yeah, close to a couple of inches or three or four, three to six centimeters. So um, that, that's a challenge, and it, especially when you have a lot of relief in the scene because relief displacement makes it difficult to align the images. And what is relief displacement? So relief displacement has to do with the uh, angle of the rays in- incident and the look angle. And uh, if there are vertical features that, that are essentially closer to where the sensor is, then that's a different path length. So it changes the scale. You can think of it as like when you're flying and you're looking out the window and you're seeing the side of a building here, and then you're seeing the top of the building. You know, that the buildings look like they're leaning on the imagery. That's relief displacement. Yeah. And to an autonomous system, they would look like completely different objects. When you're looking from different directions, they're going to be leaning in different directions. It's hard to get them to line up. But if you repeat the image station, you've repl- replicated the view geometry. So the second time you come over, things are going to be leaning in the same direction. So it's fairly easy with image warping techniques to get those images to co-align or line up or register, as we call it. Mm-hmm. And do you use any uh, image processing to identify what landmarks are? Like, this is a building, this is vegetation? Right, yeah. So... So in the auto-matching, it finds features that co-match. That's, that's the whole part of photogrammetry, the structure for motion that's been made popular because of UAV imaging. And you know, it's auto-matching ma- temporally? Yeah, it's finding the same features on, on sequential images and matching those up. Those match points provide the calibration for the warping function. So that's once we get them to line up, then we do the change detection part, which it can be a, something as simple as just taking... The differencing or subtracting the values and so anomalies on the image changes are going to be anomalies of, of the image brightness values the mm-hmm. digital number values and so if something was a rooftop and now it's got a crack that crack is a lot darker and that crack is darker but there's several pixels that are contiguous right that create a crack 
So we're looking for those kind of features in a semi-automatic fashion. Okay, and uh, do you, are there people who also uh, pour over the image data after the uh, autonomous system is flagged? Yeah, that's a really good question, yeah. So, so rarely would you ever rely on an automated routine. But if you can uh, alert the anal- image analyst, the person you're talking about that's doing this, it's going to make the actual judgment. If you can alert them to what to look for, right, and without doing it, without having a thousand more false detections, it just has them look at everything, right? That's the challenge. And that's the biggest problem with misalignment is that you just get a lot of false detections. Yeah. So you mentioned cars, yeah. We can see cars, no problem. But cars is a noise source because cars are in one image and not the next. So they're going to show up as an anomaly. Here's the difference. So you got to have routines that screen out the cars. The other big issue are shadows because, you know, it would be very rare that you would come back with exactly the same illumination condition. So shadows go in different directions, and that causes a difference in brightness between times. So uh, that's where we're working on routines to minimize that effect. So do you then deploy the drones or the other image processing so- uh, platforms mm-hmm. at same time of day to minimize these differences in lighting and shadows? If you could, <laughs> but you know, if, if seasonality has a lot to do with it, right? So if, if you're time one imagery in the bank was captured in March and now the earthquake happens in the middle of the summer where there are fewer shadows you know even if you go the same time of day you're going to have different shadows so it a 15 minute 5 minutes 15 minute difference in illumination we do a lot of testing like come back around get it just little changes like that could cause a big apparent differences in the brightness so but morning and afternoon shadows are going different direction that you know, we create these uh, registered image sets, and it looks like when you flash back and forth, you kind of flicker to look for the change. It looks like everything's not lining up, but it's just the shadows are going in different directions. So. And what's the timeline for uh, how long it takes for the system to flag any changes mm-hmm. from when uh, the images were taken? Can this be done in real time? It can be. Uh, we're not there yet. I mean, we have the... We're getting close with the auto-matching routines and the registration routine. But even if you could, you know, register, do any kind of shadow correction, and um, the change detection automatically, which which can be done very rapidly. Quite often the issue then is the delivery part of it, right? So you do you have a telemetry system on the UAV? That's really not supported right now, at least in the, the uh, civilian domain. So... So you still you know, have to land the system back. You, know. you, could, you could telemeter some automatic products almost, so kind of look at a map of pro- probable changes as so opposed to something to on the to transfer image. data. Right, to transfer data. But are you transferring the imagery? Are you transferring some kind of derived product, like a map of where we think the changes are? Which means all of that would be done on board, the processing. So that's where we're going, but it's not. We don't have that. I don't think anybody else has that right now. And this, this repeat station imaging, by the way, is maybe the only way you could truly do real time because to get images at that high resolution lined up so that they're, they don't have misregistration, the typical solution to that is a photogrammetric one where you take one image and you have a surface digital elevation model and you correct for the relief displacement and then you have an independent image and you do the same thing and then you hope they line up because they're both mapped, right? And they don't. They don't line up quite as well as if you go through this more implicit, or sorry, more explicit registration where we capture from the same location 
and register by matching points. You can still do the ortho rectification, but you do it together with the images together rather than independently. All right, so, thank you very much. Yeah, sure. Next, Abati spoke to Eugene Iksevich, CEO of Brain Corporation, about the modeling of human intelligence to give navigating robots a sense of perception and physical awareness using a variety of sensors. Hello. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Eugene Izekevich, founder and CEO of Brain Corporation. And can you tell me what you guys, uh, what service you guys provide at Brain Corporation? Uh, we build brains for robots, and we work with uh, multiple OEMs to embed our technology into their products to convert their manual commercial machines into autonomous robots. Uh, can you give some examples of uh, how your software helps to do that? Uh, we develop brain operating system, which is uh, brain OS for robots. It uh, serves the same purpose as Android OS for smartphones. So uh, we uh, use we're a software company, uh, mainly software company. We develop this software uh, which has uh, vision, computer vision capabilities, uh, visual perception capabilities, uh, has full navigation stack. Uh, and our present customers are uh, OEMs that uh, original equipment manufacturers in commercial cleaning space. Uh, they create uh, indoor vehicles that do certain job, like clean the floor. And uh, we work with them to convert, uh, to use our software to convert their manual machines into self-driving indoor vehicles. And what are some applications of the uh, self-driving indoor vehicles and navigation? We started with the uh, floor cleaning, primarily because uh, commercial floor cleaners don't have to do anything other than move around and be 100% safe. Uh, they don't. Typical applications, if you have to go from point A to point B, like material handling, you have to do certain tasks at point A, then you need to decide where to go. You have to do certain tasks at point B. For floor cleaning applications, there's no point A, point B, just you have to clean the floor. So this is an easier task. And uh, just to give you an example, that the, the most successful consumer robot is Roomba the vacuum cleaner. And all it has to do is just go around and cover your space. Now uh, Roomba go uses bump-and-go technology. But when we're talking about uh, commercial floor cleaners, they're, they're big, they can weigh 800 pounds, so you cannot use bump-and-go. You have to be 100% absolutely safe. Um, so but, but that's the only requirement. As long as you're safe, be useful. And how does your uh, computer vision algorithms uh, process the information intelligently to understand uh, their environment, what's around them, what the obstacles are, what the map looks like? Uh, for this, you need to start with the history of Brain Corporation. We started as a contractor in D-House, uh, performing certain deep, uh, deep learning and computer vision projects for Qualcomm. Uh, we built the very first Qualcomm robot. When I say Qualcomm robot, I mean it's a robot with Snapdragon inside and all the useful so software to make robot useful. We built the very first Qualcomm drone, the very first Qualcomm 3D printed robot. So we developed a lot of expertise in deep learning, computer vision, um, AI in general. So we transferred this knowledge into our software, uh, into our products, where we have a number of sensors. We have three cameras looking at different directions, uh, where uh, our navigation stack can use vision to uh, understand where it is, to uh, navigate using visual cues and landmarks, 
to see and avoid people and obstacles. Um, and not all based on uh, using algorithms that are proprietary to us, which are state of the art in the sense that uh, we, our machines, can uh, can have very weird shapes, uh, have very interesting dynamics and kinematics. But our algorithms are aware of the body of the machine and can navigate in very very tight spaces, coming within centimeters of the obstacles without ever touching them. And it does all this through different processes of deep learning uh, to train the computer vision. The brain OS. If you look at brain OS, you can see similarity between different brain structures. You can see, oh, this this looks like a function of the basal ganglia, or this is like a, a brain stem, or, or this is like a visual cortex. So we borrow a lot from neuroscience. We we're kind of inspired and motivated by neuroscience. It doesn't have spiky neurons and spiky networks, but other than that. It's there are a lot of similarities, um, and as a result, uh, the robots guided by Brain OS are more akin to animals navigating in the space than um, just just robots. Um, so the computer vision algorithms really closely model a human way of understanding its surroundings. Is that what you're saying? You don't need to model human brain, right? If you have a system that as good or as bad, something let's say, as a reptilian brain, just imagine how many applications you can. It's it's already a multi-billion-dollar industry, creating robots which are as stupid. And I'm, I'm making this gesture with quotes, uh, quote unquote, stupid as crocodiles or turtles, because those animals have amazing visual systems. Not even close to the mammalian visual system, but still they have amazing vision. They have an amazing um, way, amazing motor control system. This is what we try to develop, develop during our early days. This is what we are commercializing right now. And so when you think of uh, artificial intelligence, you often think of chess-playing robots and these sort of like clever problem-solving. How important is uh, perception, self-awareness uh, in the realm of artificial intelligence for a machine? It's very important, but it's not the same as... Uh, Understanding human speech and playing chess. Uh, in, rob in robotics, let's focus on navigation. You don't need to uh, be really smart to navigate. In fact, a lot of lot of insects can navigate reliably without bumping into obstacles. Or not. Uh, although they could be fooled by mirrors and glass just because of the deficiency in their sensors, but they can navigate very efficiently. Then they have nowhere close. Uh, intellectual ability to play chess or doing, do even something that Siri can do. So you have to, uh, since you, have, you always have limited resources, you have to develop a system that uh, works within these constraints that solves the problem they need to solve. So if you have a navigation robot, they focus on a navigation stack and you don't need to worry about high human intelligence in chess playing. Now if you have a robot that has an arm and has to uh, grasp objects, then you focus on this on manipulation, which again doesn't involve chess playing or other activities. Now, if you have a robot that has to understand human speech, for example, maybe you have autonomous wheelchair and you want to tell it where to go, then yeah, then you have to add other functionalities, which are developed by Google and Apple and Microsoft, uh, where you uh, kind of can interact with the robot, and then the robot has to decide which path to take or where this destination is. But once it's decided. After that, it goes back to the lower-level uh, motor control system, which is responsible for safe navigation.
or safe manipulation, or visual perception, seeing obstacles and deciding how to avoid them. And um, so when, when animals and when people navigate around an environment, they often use uh, multiple different sensory inputs, and that helps to strengthen their uh, understanding of the environment. They see, they feel, and then they hear noises, and they all work together to make them understand what an object is. So do your navigation systems uh, also incorporate these multisensorial? Um, Absolutely. This is because every sensor gives a piece of information. And sometimes, even if you don't need the sensor to navigate, but you always want to see what the sensor tells you, whether, whether the, the reading from the sensor is consistent with readings from other sensors. If no other reason, then just to know that the other sensors are functioning properly. Um, in uh, half of the company, uh, half, half of employees of the company have PhD in computational neuroscience, artificial intelligence, machine learning, computer vision. So we're very keen, in, in, we will know, we're aware how animals uh, do certain tasks, or at least to the best knowledge of neuroscience, how the task is performed, so that we can borrow a lot of ideas into uh, building artificial brains and artificial uh, nervous system. I'll give you one example. We have cerebellum, which is often responsible, people call internal models of the brain, just where you match different sensory readings to make sure that there is a match between them. Uh, and if there's a mismatch, then just you report that something is wrong. And a typical example, when you hear a mismatch between your vestibular organ and your vision, which often help and help us on shapes and results in motion signals, uh, in animal kingdom, it's uh, this typical results of animal eating poisonous food, therefore you have to empty your stomach, right? So there are certain reactions when there's a mismatch. We do exactly the same thing, other than instead of uh, emptying your, st- uh, your stomach, we know that uh, if there's a mismatch between se- uh, reading of certain sensors, then some of the sensors are broken, therefore the machine is no longer safe to navigate. We also know that sometime, uh, sometimes you need to uh, collect, uh, get the full context of uh, where you are, what what, sur- what surrounds you, to make a decision where to go. For this, uh, you can use either uh, sensor fusion algorithms or use other ways how you can combine readings from different sensors and with different modalities uh, to make the best decision. Thank you very much. And last but not least, our final interview from RoboUniverse 2016 is with Cullen Hilkeen, CEO of 3Diligent, with whom Abata discusses the 3D printing marketplace the company developed to connect customers with 3D printing vendors. Hello and welcome to the Robots Podcast. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, Cullen Hilkeen from 3Diligent. Uh, can you tell me what you guys do at 3Diligent? Sure. So 3Diligent is a rapid manufacturing service provider, but we are a virtual service provider. So you might think of us as Uber meets Amazon for rapid manufacturing. Uber network drivers, Amazon network retailers. We've networked contract manufacturers who've invested in heavy-duty, industrial-grade rapid manufacturing technologies, especially 3D printing. So in a single online web interface, you can submit a request for quote. We analyze it. We route it to qualified suppliers in our supply base to give you guys the fastest turnaround times, the best prices for rapidly manufactured parts of all kinds of different shapes and sizes. 
So you guys, uh, so you guys specialize in 3D printing. Do you keep any 3D printers in house? We do, we do. We have one printer that we keep in house for kind of knock around, fun prototyping type applications. Uh, one thing we really do believe in at Three Diligent is that desktop printing is a fantastic tool. We think everybody should probably have desktop printers. Um, but as far as the industrial technology is concerned, it's expensive. And there are different material requirements, learning curves, maintenance contracts, in addition to the regular sticker price. And so uh, we believe with all those obsolescence challenges and all the other implications of it, uh, it's better to use a service like ours, submit a single RFQ, and then allow us to leverage people who are specialized in operating that particular piece of equipment, that particular material, so that the quality of the output is better. So you guys connect people who want to print 3D parts with 3D print shops. Yeah, that's effectively it. And it's not just 3D printing, but contract manufacturers who do machining, who do uh, urethane casting. Uh, We even get into some injection molding. But... um, in addition to kind of connecting to the best uh, offerings in the market, we're providing a single seamless service. So a single request for quote, a single purchase order tied to everything, a single service really so that uh, rather than you having to worry about obsolescence risk of your own equipment or for that matter the guy down the street, whether he's got the right solution for you, we've got hundreds of machines uh, with I think hundreds of different materials. So mm-hmm. really whatever you need, you can get it in a single place rather than worrying about those limitations and those cost and, and turnaround time concerns. So you can, uh, you can 3D print in any type of materials and connect people with any type of 3D printing that they would like. Yeah, basically. I mean, I, any is a big word, but I would say, uh, you know, because there are some edges of science where there's kind of new and different 3D printing technologies. Mm-hmm. I think one of the cool things about what we do is those types of companies seek us out because they kind of view us as a marketing channel for new technology uh, and getting their capabilities into the market. But um, the vast majority of commercialized 3D printing technologies exist on our platform, whether you're talking about printing in gypsum, resin, plastic, metal, ceramic. We, we check all the boxes. And what do your customers do to distinguish between the different 3D print vendors that you provide them, the different options you provide them? Uh, Well, a lot of the differentiation is actually squared away on the 3 diligence side. So whenever anybody submits a request for quote through our platform, uh, we have a create RFQ form, which is actually very text-driven. It's not a lot of box checking and saying, hey, I know exactly what I want. We've actually deliberately structured it to have flexibility. You describe what you need, the material characteristics that you're looking for, the turnaround time that you're targeting. And all of those are factors that allow us to say, all right, based on our supply network, what are the best solutions? And then we'll go out and gather a few bids from the kind of best matches and then come back to our partners saying, this is what we can do for you. These are your your available options. Um, and in so doing, allow customers to have the right solution for them rather than have a particular solution just kind of forced on them. So do you guys then interact with uh, every request that a customer puts on your website? Uh, Do you guys personally get in there and choose what the best options are or is this process automated? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And uh, we actually offer a couple of different services. So it's a different answer depending on the service that you're talking about. Um, the, the two primary services, we have a marketplace service and we have a 3Diligent Direct service. So with 3Diligent uh, Direct and marketplace, whenever you submit an RFQ, we have an algorithm. We've developed some mechanisms to identify who the best suppliers are going to be for a particular job. Um, with the marketplace, we then just release the job and then allow for bids to come back and for our uh, customers to kind of choose their own adventure, as it were, with the bids that come back to them. With 3Diligent Direct, it's a much more hands-on type of uh, experience for our customers. So we will have a discussion with them, make sure we understand all the specifics of their project, their RFQ, what they're looking to achieve, where there are trade-offs, and also how they want us to engage with our supply base. So if it's a confidential job, for instance, uh, all of our confidential jobs run through 3Diligent Direct. We put in place a really gnarly confidentiality agreement with our suppliers to the point where some of our suppliers just said, hey, that's so aggressive we can't even opt into it. Um, But those that do, that allows us to have confidentiality agreements directly with our customers. And then when they submit those 3 diligent direct jobs and they check the confidentiality box, and sorry if I'm going a little long on this, but uh, most importantly, it allows us to say, how do you want us to engage our suppliers? Do you want us to just work with one of them? Do you want us to work with two, three? And so we can kind of match the experience to whatever the customer is looking for. Okay. And how many, uh, how many vendors do you have in your marketplace? So we're approaching triple digits. We have vetted several hundred uh, at this point, but not all of them made the cut. So uh, at this point, uh, approaching triple digits in terms of qualified suppliers across North America, um, and that represents around a half billion dollars of annual manufacturing capacity. Mm -hmm. And do you have any other competitors in this space? There are a few folks who, uh, who we compete with. Um, some of them are kind of traditional uh, companies. So, you know, those are some names that uh, you've probably heard of, like Proto Labs or a mm-hmm. Stratasys Direct or a 3D mm-hmm. Systems Quick Parts. And what do you mean by traditional, uh, as in established? Uh... Well, in the sense that uh, they have their equipment in-house. Okay. So, um, so they've made a... A, a strategic choice to say, hey, we're going to have a whole lot of equipment mm-hmm. in our specific facilities. Um, we've made a strategic choice to say we don't want mm-hmm. to take all those in-house. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, it's just a philosophy with respect to the state of the market and where it's yeah. going. But uh, but that's where I would see the key differentiation between Okay, us. so you guys are the only ones who don't have the operations in-house and you're the just a connecting point for consumers to third-party vendors no there are some other folks uh who have some similarities to us uh in the sense that they've got kind of a distributed supply network there are uh, a bunch of single shingle guys uh out there who are just hey we're we're parts guys i I know a few people on my rolodex and i can get parts made Mm -hmm. for you so Mm -hmm. uh certainly not to say that but i think that uh we have developed uh, some smart software solutions uh, that really, I think, differentiate us from anybody who's got a distributed supply network, um, and, and we're offering an integrated service solution. So as opposed to just kind of an open, throw an RFQ out there, it's a bid board, let's let's see what comes out on the other side. 
uh, it's really a, an integrated solution where you know we've gone out and vetted our suppliers and you're going to get a three diligent quality part um, whenever you submit an RFQ through our system. All right. Thank you very much. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today and for our coverage from Robo Universe 2016. We hope you enjoyed this insight into practical applications of robots and intelligent systems from the experts at the conference. As always, you can visit robohub.org for more information. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye! Robo Universe with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.